the new fully electric Audi e-tron GT. Enjoy the breathtaking performance and design of the future of electric mobility from Audi. With Quattro-inspired flared wheel arches and matrix design LED headlights, every element has been carefully considered and selected to help deliver a thrilling drive. And with an acceleration of 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 4.1 seconds, the Audi e-tron GT is performance electrified. Start the future now and visit audi.ca to learn more. Canada is in the throes of a painful third wave of the coronavirus pandemic. But the vaccination campaign is picking up speed, and so economists are starting to look ahead. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Francis Donald, Global Chief Economist at Manulife Investment Management, and the author of a recent report on the economic outlook for Canada. Donald said that the economy may emerge from the pandemic in decent shape, but that this shouldn't obscure the fact that Canada needs to address some of its structural problems which are holding back the economy. She means things like the lack of affordable housing or the lack of childcare. And Donald also had an ask for government, which is that it take advantage of the historically low interest rates to invest in infrastructure and other services that could really propel the economy in the years ahead. As always, the interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Francis Donald, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. As we sit here today, Canada is experiencing this really painful third wave, which you mentioned in your report on the macroeconomic outlook for Canada. I was wondering if you could just explain what's working for us right now. Yeah, and I'll tell you that it's challenging when you're sitting in the middle of a pandemic and feeling it in your day-to-day life to find the optimistic tone. But when we look out over what Canada looks like in the next six to nine months, there's a couple things that feel a little bit different in this wave compared to prior waves. And one is that we do have vaccines. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And while the tunnel feels very dark right now, and in some cases is even more challenging, there's a likely time limit on how long we have to deal. So that gives us a little bit of hope. It means that households can hang on to the other side with government support. And it means that businesses know that this is the last wave that they probably have to go through. And there are some other elements that maybe say to me, don't feel too dark, don't feel too dismal. Uh, One is that we actually have a significant amount of government support. And when I measure Canadian job losses relative to U.S. job losses, justified relative to the size of our economies, Canada didn't experience as large of a labor shock. And we didn't experience the drop in the labor force participation rate to the same extent in the U.S. When people drop out of the labor force, they just say, I'm not even interested in looking anymore. And in the depths of the crisis, we saw this predominantly uh, with women. We all understand when we're dealing with virtual learning or just start to worry for our children that this is really dragging on growth in general. So this is an issue for Canada, but slightly less. So the hole that we have to climb out of is actually less here than it is in the United States. We also need to recognize that we are benefiting in part from the U.S., which is ahead of us on vaccines, not experiencing the third wave to the same extent. So yes, we're looking forward to the other side. I do always worry about underinvestment and business confidence in Canada. It is a weakness of this economy. And I cannot imagine that any companies, whether it's small business or big businesses, are looking into a third wave and thinking, this is good. So we do need to monitor that. But there is another side. And if you are thinking strategically about your own business or investment portfolio over the long run, I am trying both in my personal and professional life to think out over the six to 12 months and not the next month. 
Yeah. I got the sense that while there's definitely a lot of positives on the horizon, a hot housing market, savings, the stock market that looks to be in pretty good shape, the US recovery is going well. There was another aspect that the recovery in some ways is really tenuous. If you take a look at our housing market, for instance, it may have given uh, homeowners an income boost, but overall, to your point about investment in Canada and corporate competitiveness, higher home prices, it seems like may actually be a bad thing in the long term. Yeah, I think, you know, while the economy will come back online, and I feel fairly confident that most, not all, most jobs will come back pretty quickly. There are a variety of hangovers to the Canadian economy from what we've been through in the last year. Some of them are fairly obvious. I mean, even people I know who live in small towns across Canada are shocked by how fast house prices have rocketed up. Montreal is starting to see some of the things that Torontonians have been experiencing for years. But I really love the conversation to move away from, well, home prices fall 10% or 50% and are we going to have a housing market collapse to thinking more about some of the challenges that come from a society that deals with exceptionally high home prices. And this is why I call Canadian housing a bubble very easily. If I look at a definition of a bubble, Canada's housing market, particularly in some areas, not all areas, qualifies. But we should be thinking about it more as a housing affordability crisis. So what happens when your cost of living becomes very, very high? And I'm going to merge this in with the childcare discussion as well, because the childcare affordability crisis, particularly in Ontario, but in other pockets of Canada as well, is the secondary kind of blow here. And if we live in a society where we have exceptionally high home prices, and the access issue becomes problematic for, let's say, those under the age of 35, you're going to see economic transition. You're going to see a corporate competitiveness issue. One of the best things about Canada is that we have these really high human capital. We have very intelligent. We have a very uh, interesting characteristics, a nice place to live. I can say that even as a Montrealer, I love Montreal winters. I've convinced myself that they're great. Uh, but labor is actually relatively cheap. One of my concerns is that as Torontonians and, and those who live in BC and even those in other areas of the country start to see their home prices rise, if they're dealing with these cost of living issues, they're going to demand higher wages. And that's going to make it a lot higher, harder to attract and retain talent. That's a big picture issue that goes beyond our home prices going to fall or rise 10%. And it actually, in my view, is even more painful for the economy in the long run. And there are other areas that we need to monitor. My own view is that we're reaching a pivotal moment where the population will demand intervention in the housing market, particularly younger generations. The housing affordability crisis is a youth crisis. And by youth, I mean all those up to 35. It is going to economically hamper our next generation of workers and spenders. And yet we treat it as though it's a HELOC issue or is it going to hurt banks? It's so much more profound than that. So my expectation is that we're going to have demands on governments to address the issue. And those demands are going to have to move from just, can you give me a little more money so I can access it as a first-time homebuyer? Or can you make it uh, you know, harder to get a mortgage so we don't have as much risk in the system? And it's probably going to move to the idea that we need to build out supply, purpose-built rentals. And from that view, you know, as you know, I, I work on the investment side of the picture. We're looking at how does that actually change the landscape for future real estate investment trusts, for example. So we need to think about maybe real estate, not just Toronto, Vancouver, but, and this comes into my third point, do we need to start monitoring for interprovincial migration? So I've been very public about this. I just left Toronto and moved towards Montreal. And I know a whole bunch of people who did this. I get regular Twitter direct messages asking me, is it a good time to move from Toronto to Montreal? 
that's a personal decision I cannot help you with. But there's absolutely, in my view, going to be a big outflux. And this is going to be, of course, encouraged by a lot of corporations saying work from home is a possibility. Uh, even my sister's left Toronto towards Ottawa. It doesn't surprise me at all. We're probably going to see this more and more. So I think that a lot of provincial governments and municipal governments can get on top of this trend. Hopefully what we see is sort of natural interprovincial migration aided by corporations who move head offices to other cities. And then we can maybe see a little supply demand rebound. But that's going to take a long time. In the meantime, there's likely going to be a lot more pressure on government. Yeah. I mean, you said that in your report that it's all it's all about supply and in some ways finding a way to build more affordable rental units that, like you said, will take a really long time for this to work itself out. And in the meantime, Canada has really relied on immigration as a key driver of growth. So if you go back to Econ 101 textbooks, you know, growth is a function of your labor force participation rate. How many people do you have available to work and their productivity? So Canada has some of the fastest population growth in the OECD. We don't do it because we have babies. I had one. It's exhausting. I get it. But we do it because we have these very high immigration targets that help grow our economy over time. But if we raise our immigration targets, we have to have places for people to live. And we have to have companies that employ people outside of areas where you have these affordability crises. So this really this whole issue of housing, I think we've been so myopic on it. Are house prices going up or down? Or how much money think on my helog? And what's the credit implications? That's really important. It really is. We, we don't want systemic risk. We don't want a financial crisis. But that, to me, is not the next five-year issue. The next five-year issue is how is this changing the landscape of our country, where people live, what type of housing they buy. And within that, I think there are risks and opportunities, and and we're just going to have to make sure municipal provincial governments are on top of it. Yeah. I want to pivot for a second. There's a new budget. So you wrote that the debate shouldn't really be about how many billions of dollars of debt we have right now, but we should look at what the cost of that debt is and whether it's manageable and affordable. Yeah. So I'm going to speak about this strictly from an economist perspective, which is certainly not how one should view the world or the entirety of the world. But when I sit down and I construct my forecast for growth, it's a tedious exercise that really doesn't contribute to society much at all. But when I do this and I'm looking at a budget, you'd be shocked at how little traditional government budgets factor into our outlook. We care more about things like interest rates and corporate confidence. But there are some things that can come in a budget that can change the way we think about a country. And one of them is infrastructure spending. So what does infrastructure spending do? Things like highways and roads and transit. What it generally does is it helps more people go to work if they want to, and it helps them be more productive. If you spend 30 minutes on public transit instead of an hour and a half, you're more likely to you know, have a better day at work or maybe just do more in your own life, et cetera, et cetera. If we have more bridges, if we have more ports, then we actually have access to international trade, and it grows your growth over time. Now, it generally takes time. The IMF has a great report on this. Infrastructure spending takes five to eight years to hit your real economy. So it's not an overnight thing. But when you see infrastructure spending, you really do see changes in growth over time. Now, I would add that increasingly, and thank goodness, we have come to recognize that childcare is critical infrastructure. Why? Because it does the exact same thing. It encourages labor force participation rate. It gets more people to work. It makes them more productive. And in return, not only does the government get the dollar that it spent on childcare back, it can get one and a half to two times that dollar back. So why do I say this? Because when we're looking at the amount of government spending, we're not looking at the headline number. We're trying to figure out what is it being spent on and how does it boost the economy over time? And then there's this additional layer of the cost of debt. 
So when you go to buy a home, for example, for most people I know are trying to figure out how much of a monthly payment they can afford. They're not thinking, oh, you know, I can afford a um, you know, $800,000 house. They might be thinking, actually, I can afford a $2,500 mortgage. I don't know if those two numbers make sense. I just put them out there. And then if I can afford $2,500 a month, then this is the total amount uh, of a mortgage that I can find. Well, governments need to operate the same way because they pay a servicing cost. They pay an interest rate and interest to people who lend us money in this current environment. And right now, that interest rate is extraordinarily low. So if you were trying to design an economy and say, we need a massive improvement in infrastructure, maybe it's green infrastructure because we have to make a climate transition. Maybe it's transportation. Maybe it's traditional infrastructure. Maybe it's childcare. Right now, you can borrow that money much more cheaply and you have a longer time period to recoup the gains on that before your interest rates start to rise. And then there's another part of the story. So I said, you got to pay someone the, the interest, right? Well, guess who owns over 30% of all of government of Canada debt right now? It's actually the Bank of Canada. So we're in an environment where we're likely to see very low interest rates. We're not suffering from lack of people who want to buy Canadian debt, at least not yet. So we should really be thinking about what are the long-term benefits to these short-term costs. Now, the problem is that we will not be in a low interest rate environment forever. We are going to see interest rates rise eventually. I think the Bank of Canada will start taking interest rates in 2024 very, very slowly. But that's entirely reasonable. And if you want to say, no, it's going to be 2023, I would say, okay, maybe it's 2023. You know, I don't have a crystal ball, somewhere around there. And when those interest rates start to rise, the government of Canada's interest payment will rise too. It'd be like if you have a variable rate mortgage and your interest goes up, all your payment starts to go up as well. So as the government constructs their way of thinking about spending, they have to be cognizant, just like we're stress tests for our mortgages, that interest rates can rise over time. And this is why I say the real constraint on them should be something like the debt service cost to revenue. What share of $100 that you bring in are you paying towards interest costs? In the past, it's been as much as $30. Well, no wonder we had a crisis in the 90s. You brought in $100, $30 just goes towards paying your debt. That only would do 70 to help improve the lives of Canadians. So it's not a free-for-all. It's not an excuse to spend as much as you want. But it is an ask. This is my ask of governments worldwide in Canada, provincial, federal, all of them. Think strategically about if you could borrow at some of the lowest rates you've ever seen, how would you invest in your economy to grow it in a way that you get that money back and then some? You pay down your interest, you pay down the debt, and know that you probably have a longer timeline to do that than you have in past cycles. So again, I'm just asking, let's just have a little bit more nuance beyond the headline number and recognize that how that number is spent and how it's financed is actually critical to the way our economy will, will develop. One of the reasons why I asked this was because interest rates have been low for a long time. But I have found that economists' views about government debt has always been about balanced budgets, the size of the deficit, not necessarily what's manageable or ideal or anything like that. And I'm wondering if you think economists' views have evolved as a result of this crisis and the financial crisis of 2008, where you also saw you know, some stimulus injected into the economy. Well, the entire conversation around budget deficits has evolved in the past year. And part of that was the seeds planted by the concept of modern monetary theory. Now, when I first heard about modern monetary theory, I remember people would say to me, it's the magic money tree. They say you can spend as much money as you want and there's no repercussions at all. 
Well, actually, that's not exactly what the whole theory says. And you don't have to actually subscribe to the idea that you can create massive amounts of spending and it only matters when you hit inflation to recognize the true message. And I think the one that's really sunk in is we're probably less constrained by the concept of a balanced budget than we thought we were. So there's going to be a limit on how much money governments can spend. And that limit is going to be defined by, first and foremost, and this is the modern monetary thing, we'll admit this by inflation. And the second, and particularly for a place like Canada, is not as attractive as a global investment hub as the United States, unfortunately, is that we do have to make sure that we have people to buy the debt that we issue. Now, modern monetary theory says, well, you print the your own currency, therefore you will never default. But we still actually have to maintain an attractive bond market and we have to make sure that people feel the Canadian dollar is attractive. And I don't know, you know, in the pre-COVID world, when I would go down to my own inclusive in Mexico, I could pay for things with the U.S. dollar. Nobody wanted my Canadian dollar. Well, sure, the investment world, everybody wants U.S. dollars. People are not so excited about seeing dollars and the reason to hold them. So, yes, it's been a really formidable change in the way we think about budget spending. I find it interesting that particularly in the United States, very famous economists have been arguing that the United States is spending too much money. But they're not saying that the United States is spending too much money because it's a large deficit. They're saying they're spending too much money because it's going to create inflation. And this is a massive trend change in the way that economists think. Not all economists, I will say, but there's definitely been a, a permutation. And you know, more broadly, I'll say, I think to myself sometimes, 2020 was supposed to be the greatest modern recession of the past 100 years. And actually, GDP had the largest contraction we've ever seen by, I think, like a multiple of five. And yet, unemployment rose temporarily, but we didn't see big jumps in mortgage defaults credit card default. There were some challenging periods for a lot of families, but certainly nothing compared to what we saw in the Great Depression. And the question I think a lot of us are going to be asking if we head into the next recession is, can governments really smooth this a lot more than they have? Can we have preventable rises in unemployment when we hit recessions? Or are we going to create all sorts of you know, distortions in our economy and market by preventing recessions ahead? But I think if you walk down the street and you see a food line or, or you see a mom who's struggling to feed her kids because she's lost her job, you might be questioning, who cares if I see a little bit of inflation? Um, I'm not saying that's the right view. Inflation is painful. But we may be going through a philosophical shift here. We wonder, uh, do we really need to have recession? I'm sure many of your readers are listening or listening to this and thinking, well, that's insane. Of course, you have to experience them. Their market clearing events will end up like Japan with zombie companies. And those are really true concerns. Uh, my point is just that you know, we may want to reevaluate whether we've had false constraints on government spending and how many more people we can help in the next downturn. It's such a subtle shift. And inflation itself, I hear a lot of different viewpoints about whether we're going to see a lot of inflation or not going to see a lot of inflation, when we're going to see it. Is there a consensus about inflation right now? There's very little consensus about inflation, but I'll tell you what, there rarely has been, not in the last couple of cycles, particularly not since 2008. One of the challenges here is that there's a couple things. The way to think about inflation is inflation and rising prices, particularly good inflation, happens when demand exceeds supply for an extended period of time. If everybody wants to buy the new workout leggings that I really want, and there's not enough of them, then they can raise the price and that'll keep demand that'll drop off. That's what we learn about in our Econ 101 textbook. Now, the problem in our current environment is that we have pockets where we have excessive demand exceeding supply. And one of them that I think we all recognize is lumber prices. 
I would desperately like to put up a fence. My dog is on a long lead outside right now. I want a fence. Lumber prices are through the roof. I know plenty of friends and family that would like to put additions onto their homes. Of course, it is a, a housing bubble right now. And they have a shortage of joists because we have this massive demand. We've seen inflation in a variety of our lives. I know that uh, Pelotons were exceedingly difficult to get. I settled for an echelon. It's like a Peloton knockoff. And even that was really hard. And um, I don't know about you, but actually in the beginning of the pandemic, getting a webcam was just really, really challenging, right? So we have pockets where we see extraordinary inflation. And particularly for Canadians, a lot of those pockets hit really close to home. Housing, childcare is going to get more expensive, home improvements, food prices are going to become problematic. And the things that we wanted during the crisis were really, really expensive. So our perception is that the cost of living is rising all around us. And actually, your day-to-day cost of living is rising. The problem is that our aggregate inflation measures are looking at every single element in the economy, and there we don't have demand exceeding supply. And there is not demand exceeding supply in airplane tickets right now, or restaurants, or dry cleaning, or business suits. These are not experiencing that. So the aggregate inflation is very low. And this is really hard. And I think this is hard for comedians. And I feel like and when I can, I ask policymakers to acknowledge it, that our inflation measures are not really speaking the truth to cost of living changes. And this is why there's such a disconnect. When you go to the pump and you're paying more, but a central bank tells you there's no, there's no more than 2% inflation, that isn't just sort of like a, a disconnect, but it's almost offensive. That's how I feel a lot of the time in my day-to-day life. Um, inflation measures are not really designed to tell you cost of living. They're a consumer price basket. They're trying to give you a sense of aggregate demand and supply. This is why central banks use concepts of an output gap. But the economics profession has to come around to recognizing and validating Canadians' feelings that we don't see the excessive affordability issues that are plaguing a lot of Canadians in a lot of places in our regular inflation data. So fascinating to me about what you're saying about these pockets of inflation and and this sort of new shift in thinking about government spending is that I have tended to think of inflation as something that central banks address, but some of these issues that you address, like childcare, for instance, our federal government is talking about creating a national childcare system. I mean, they're talking about it. We'll see if it happens. But that seems like some of the onus of addressing that is going to shift at the government level as to who is responsible in a new way. Is that fair? Oh, it's more than fair. I wrote a piece early in this year. I have to do these economic outlooks. Uh, what I do want to do is talk about the things we have to relearn from our economics textbooks. And uh, I'll share with you, uh, about a month ago, I got a call from a major textbook publisher, pretty pretty significant one. And he said to me, you know, I realized that not a single one of our economic textbooks has modern monetary theory, cryptocurrencies, talking about green transitions. We literally have to rewrite our economic textbooks. So I wrote this piece that I called Macro Disruptors, and there's seven of them. And the number one, and the one that sees through to all of them, is the blurring of the roles between central banks and government. When I was growing up in the business, I know a lot of people think I'm four years old, but I've been around a little bit. When I was growing up, the goal of the central bank was price stability, particularly in Canada, inflation between 1% and 3%, target 2%, and governments were there to kind of mollify recessions. But now our central banks not only have absorbed huge amounts of the bond market and are maintaining financial stability, but a lot of global central banks are beginning to focus on things like climate change, income and racial inequalities. There was a great Bloomberg piece a couple of weeks ago. It said Chair Powell, who's uh, leading the Federal Reserve in the United States, 
has all of Wall Street trying to forecast black unemployment. And he's 100% right. The circle is 100% right because we're doing that too. The central banks are now changing their goals to be more inclusive. The U.S. central bank says employment is not just the max employment rate. It's a broad-based and inclusive goal that is now trying to look at not just headline unemployment, but are we actually improving the lives of all segments of Americans? In Canada, our central bank has been extraordinarily focused on climate change, which makes sense because Canada has a big climate change transition, big green transition to make, and they're going to have to remain very accommodative in order to support that. So even though central banks are going to maintain inflation as sort of the end proxy of do we have the right demand supply balance in the economy, their focus is clearly expanding to things that we traditionally would have thought were government. And then exactly as you said, how interesting, funny, and peculiar that it now seems the constraint on government is not climate change or racial and income inequality to the same extent that it is inflation. So shifting of the goals. And if you're markets-minded, what does this essentially apply? It means that your front-end interest rates, so your two, three-year interest rates, you borrow two, three years, remain extraordinarily low because even when the central bank starts to hike rates, it's probably slow. And your long end of your curve, so if you borrow for, borrow for 30 years, probably goes up a lot because you're going to have governments that issue more and more and more debt and they're going to issue it at the longer end of the curve. So this is a game changer and we have to think about it differently than we would have pre-COVID. We have to literally rewrite the textbooks, not just on modern monetary theory, but what central banks are trying to do. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Since we're, our time is wrapping up, I want to ask you about a different topic, which is I'm kind of interested in hearing how you think the Canadian economy is going to emerge from this pandemic, because I hear two points of view generally. One is that the economy is going to come roaring back and we're going to see a lot, a lot of growth and we're going to have a lot of momentum coming out of this. But then there are a lot of skeptics I hear who say the, the pandemic exposed all these structural problems. So I'm wondering if you have a view on how the Canadian economy is going to come out of this pandemic relative to the rest of the world. I think both types of people you listen to are right. And it's a timeline too. So in the short term, 12 months from now, we've probably recouped a lot of the jobs, not all of the jobs. We've recouped a lot of the jobs. Now, two, three years from now, however, we're probably through a lot of the COVID crisis and we're still dealing with the structural issues that existed before COVID and then some new ones that amplify it. So my suspicion is that many of the businesses that close do not come back online. In the United States, for example, 75% of businesses that have closed have said they're not going to reopen. And hopefully, maybe some time down the road, they find a new spot, they come up with a new idea, maybe a new cuisine even, and they open up a new restaurant. These things will come, but they take time. What concerns me is that we have a lot of momentum on the reopening as you and I and everybody we know. I mean, I just can't wait to get to a restaurant. I want to go for oysters, maybe something I can't make at home, maybe a lobster tail in the summer. I can't wait. I want to go to a movie theater really badly. And I'm going to do a lot. I'm going to definitely outspend myself on the couple months afterwards. But two, three years from now is when we hit the problem. And this is why I think I've been an advocate for taking advantage of low interest rates to get government spending to build out infrastructure. If we don't improve corporate competitiveness, I'm concerned that we'll continue to be in this oligopolistic type of environment a few telephone companies, a few banks. If we don't improve corporate competitiveness and make Canada a more affordable place to live, we're going to have retention problems. We're going to see more people who leave Canada, not just move from Toronto to Guelph, but straight up leave the country. 
and we need to fix housing because if not, we're going to end up just handcuffing a generation of Canadians who will not have access to the housing market. And while it's nice to say there are places in the world that predominantly rent and maybe we're moving towards that and it's unavoidable, then we're going to have to give Canadians some other form of economic security to help replace that. So yes, everything you hear is right. In the near term, a lot of momentum, but COVID didn't fix any of our underlying structural problems. It amplified them. And we still have a lot of work to do if five years from now we want to say we really did come out the other side better. Well, I hope that we can do it. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for hearing me out. That was Francis Donald, Chief Global Economist for Manulife. Thanks for listening to Down to Business and to the team behind this episode. Bryce Hall for music and production, Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. If you like this show, you can share it with a friend and rate Down to Business on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, find all your business news at financialpost.com.